0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and our podcast is available 24-7, wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you will find us. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and you can find me on LinkedIn. So when we consider how to succeed in work and in life, it's hard to overemphasize the importance of trust. Do we trust the organizations and people who employ us? The companies to whom we give our business? Do our employees trust us? And do we trust one another? Regardless of context, building and sustaining trust matters. And thanks to insightful scholars like today's guest, it's something we can now understand much more deeply, whether we're talking about our personal lives, or our professional lives. Sandra Sutter is a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School and the author of a really instructive new book called The Power of Trust, how companies earn it, lose it, regain it. At Harvard, Sandra studies and teaches how organizations become trusted and the vital roles that leaders play in the process. Her 2019 articles on trust were featured as a big idea in HBR, and her 2018 article, Layoffs That Don't Break Your Company, was selected as a Harvard Business Review must read, and for good reason. She's the author of two textbooks on ethical leadership, a member of the Edelman Trust Institute Advisory Board, and collaborates with Deloitte on Trust IQ and PwC on their Trust Leadership Institute. So so in other words, a true expert. Sandra, we're so thrilled to welcome you today.
0: Oh, Laura, thank you so much. Thanks for those kind comments.
1: So when we talk with each other in day-to-day life, we often think of people having trust issues. We don't often think about people having a trust specialty. How did you wind up in this area of scholarship and expertise?
0: Uh, so, uh, so it actually, what would I say, it grew out of a whole ton of stuff I've been doing before. Uh, and uh, the, so the spark came uh, when I was doing research uh, in Japan. Uh, I was at a company called Recruit Holdings, uh, which is a a technology human services firm uh, in Tokyo uh, that's a global firm now. And when we were there, uh, we learned that this company had survived a scandal that was so great uh, that the prime minister of Japan and his entire cabinet had to resign. And so that's that's got to be one juicy scandal. (laughs) And so I'm thinking, okay, so there's this notion that trust once lost can never be regained. And I thought, well, if these guys can do that, then that's got to be wrong. Right. And so as someone who studied organizational improvement and process management and ethics and leadership, it was like, I want to know more about how they did what they did. Uh, And so that was what got this. That was the kind of the pivot to trust from all the work I'd been doing before. Uh, But I do think I spent a couple of decades in an industry before I came to HBS. Uh, I was at Fidelity Investments for 12 years. I was in fashion retailing for 10 years. Uh, And in both of those assignments, those long assignments, uh, trust was also quite important. Uh, in the way that companies did business, the companies I was in. And so I was kind of primed, you would say, in research terms uh, for thinking that this was a good idea. And so when this came up, it was like, okay, I'm so there. I definitely (laughs) want to learn more.
1: So that says to me a a kind of curiosity inside you that's driving you and your work. Tell me a little bit. I'm interested in your background. Um, You mentioned that you were in fashion retailing and then you were in financial services. How did you wind up moving from such kind of applied, practical, theoretically lucrative work into being a professor?
0: Uh, So I actually, uh, so I had a a brief three-year stint actually in um, nonprofit work. So I was in a nonprofit drug program in Harvard Square. That didn't mean we sold drugs for no profit. which would be very hard to do, actually, when you think about it. Uh, We were serving street people in Harvard Square and doing some educational stuff in private schools around how do you help students who are using drugs. Uh, And But I had gotten interested through that assignment in management Uh, And then I applied to HBS uh, uh, because I thought, well, I want to know more about this. You're right. I'm a very curious person, uh, and I like to learn by doing, but I also like to learn. Uh, And so I got accepted into the Organizational Behavior uh, MBA doctoral program. Uh, this was a program that, because of people like me, no longer exists. Uh, because Okay, tell <laughs> me more. <laughs> so, so I come in, uh, and the first part of the program is you get an MBA, uh, and then you're supposed to go on to your doctoral work. Uh, and when I had received my MBA, it was like, why spoil this great degree with a doctorate? You know, who really cares about that? And actually, I hadn't worked in the for-profit business, and I thought, how could I possibly teach at a business school and not have some lived experience doing that? So I left for honestly what I thought would be a couple of years to get business experience, uh, and it just turned out that I liked doing Uh, I really like being hands on, sort of what's the problem? What are we trying to do here? Uh, And I found that remarkably compelling, so much so that I did it for like 20 years. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, I'm kind of a long hauler. Sorry, that's an awful analogy uh, to COVID, meaning that uh, I I build my career in long stints in companies and organizations.
1: Not uncommon for a lot of people. It's just not often talked about and it's rarely planned.
0: Right. Yeah. In my case, uh, you know, after sort of uh, six, seven, eight years in fashion retailing, I I realized two things. One was that I think I give better value the more I know about an organization. Which makes Uh, a lot of sense. Right. So, and it's not just that you know people, you sort of know the, organ. what are we up to? What are we trying to accomplish? And uh, and so then when I moved to Fidelity, that definitely inspired me. And Fidelity is a wonderful organization and infinite number of opportunities there to do different things. Uh, And it was the same thing that I felt like I did better work the longer I stayed. Uh, But then like most of us, there's some point for me, it actually takes quite a long time uh, for me to kind of say, okay, I think I'm getting done with that. Uh, So, in retailing it was like how many years is navy the new black in spring
1: right uh, you know
0: <laughs> and even at fidelity investments there was a point at which i i felt i had pretty much done all the things i wanted to do uh, and then it was a question of a kind of a fork in the road and did i have another big 10-year corporate stint in me uh, and at that point, I started thinking much more consciously, which I'd been doing all along about this initial foray into academia. Uh, so I contacted HBS. And uh, at the time that I was in touch with them, the school was just getting interested in having practitioners in the classroom. Uh, And so, you know, I was one of a a very early group. So this was in 1998, of people who came from industry with an interest in being part of the school and our educational mission, uh, and with an ability to bridge between kind of the academy and practice. Uh, And so, you know, so that's what it means to be a practice faculty member, uh, is that that's my job, you know, to help both my own work and other people's work get better because of what I've done.
1: Sandra, it's so interesting to hear you explain this, not only because it tells us about your unusual path, but you um, were explaining something that I felt but never articulated before, which is um, what it feels like when you stay someplace for a long time. You know it more deeply, you understand its nuances, and that it actually helps you do better work.
0: Absolutely.
1: But I have a question for you. Some of that also. Some of it's definitely about better work, but if I'm gonna be honest with myself, some of it's also about feeling confident and feeling like I got this, I know how to do this. And with these kinds of transitions, maybe, and this is our own transition into talking about trust. The first person you have to trust is yourself as you're going through these transitions. What were the emotions that were coming up for you? Were you excited, scared? What was your internal conversation at these transitions?
0: Yeah. So Laura, you are a terrific interviewer. <laughs> I just have to say that uh, your ability to kind of pick up a thread, stare at it and kind of go, where can we go with this uh, is nice. really, really interesting. So, so, uh, so let me be clear. Uh, I hate change. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and so those early days, you know, when you come to a new organization, I, I get to a point where I know I need to learn something new in order to feel refreshed and like I'm contributing, uh, But the process of actually making that transition is really painful, Uh, and it usually takes me a good year to kind of get my footing uh, and to understand the first six months is all about why are you telling me that? Why do you think I'm interested in that? Uh, And it's just, it's like, you know, things that just don't make sense because you don't have context. Uh, And so I can't say that it's easy. It's more just that I'm motivated uh, to kind of push through that initial difficulty and know myself well enough that I just have to kind of hold my breath, kind of jump in uh, and get ready for the fact that I'm going to be uncomfortable for a while. Uh, And so that's just part of the process for me. I hope it's not as painful for other people, but it's really hard. It's
1: been hard for me, too. And I've had some big career shifts. And similarly, um, you're like a fish out of water for a while and you start to learn what you don't know and why they're telling you these things. And eventually it becomes home. But it's a transition time. Also, you're talking about a period of life. And I know you have children, grandchildren. Um, Mm -hmm. Where were you in the stage of being a parent? And how did this factor into um, how work and life came together?
0: So so I stayed at Fine where I worked in fashion retailing long enough to be a vice president. Uh, And I said to myself, I wanted to have a role that was senior enough where if I wanted to leave work and go attend Mm -hmm. my daughter's track meet.
1: You could without anybody getting on your
0: case. I I could do that. Uh, And so I, I definitely had a kind of a level goal. Uh, Which is, there was a point at which I sort of knew I had to get senior to have some of the freedom to be a parent. Uh, I'm actually, uh, for better or worse, one of the women who, I was never particularly torn uh, about being at home versus being at work. Uh, I know myself, and I would have been an extremely lousy stay-at-home mother. (laughs) Right. And my kids will echo that, by the way, you know they'll say, you know, I'm great on autonomy, a great coach now that they're older, uh, but I'm the last person, except for my granddaughters, to sit on the floor and like play a game. It's just not in me. Uh, and so it was a sense of sort of what, when am I good? And how can I be a good parent? And so this was part of making it good. I was fortunate to be married to my husband, who actually supported my career all the way through. Uh, and so so for the, the fashion retailing years, I stood there and I, I actually stayed until I was that they weren't happy with me, then pregnant with my second child. Had my second child, my my son, uh, my older child is a daughter, uh, and then I started looking at fidelity. So by that point, my kids were kind of in grade school, and mm-hmm. then through high school, uh, and I didn't make the move to go come to HBS to Harvard Business School uh, until I was 50. Uh, and so by then, my kids were pretty old, you know, and uh, they also said that it was the first job I had where they could explain to someone else what I did, because no one understands corporate roles or no, no one should but they, have.
1: But to. they can understand. She teaches. She's exactly. She, yeah, mm-hmm. she
0: teaches. She's there and all that stuff. So but, so that was where I was.
1: By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zaro. My guest today is Harvard Business School professor Sandra Sutcher, author of The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It, and Regain It. So, To get personal for a minute, there have been different times in my life. Do you call what
0: we've done so far not personal? True. True. (laughs) I'm just
1: checking. Okay.
0: You know, okay. All right. Okay. Keep going. Keep going. So
1: where my trust was betrayed by somebody important in my life. Mm. And I was, and it caused me to try and reflect when we're trusting someone someone, whether it's a person or institution, what are we trusting them to do? Are we trusting them to never hurt our feelings? Are we trusting them to never make a mistake? Or are we trusting them to be who we count on them to be? It's awfully confusing when we think about it. Yeah. And as I was reading the book, there were these amazing ways that you were breaking it down into components that I wished I had understood when I was you know, heartbroken in 24. Um, so share with me, What's a functional way for us to think about what trust is and its components?
0: right. so uh so that was actually Laura, the nature of the work. It was like, okay, I'm a business person. Uh, I know this sounds like a good idea, but what on earth is it? Uh, and if it's and if it's a good idea, how can I do something about it? Let's pretend I actually want to. Uh, and so so the first thing that that we had to do work in was uh, was just the definition of trust. Uh, And so trust is a willingness uh, to be vulnerable uh, to the actions and intentions of others. So so trust, you can't be imposed, you can't say you must trust me, people have to be willing to do that. But I think that uh, for those of you who are listening, the most important thing to, to focus on here is that trust is vulnerability, right? When someone trusts they are in a, as you were just saying, a vulnerable state, Uh, And they're counting on two big things. One is your actions and how Mm -hmm. they affect you. Uh, And because they care about your actions, they're going to care about your intentions as well. Are you well disposed to them? Are you trying to do good things for them? Or are you just taking care of yourself? So that that was kind of the beginning, was just understanding that that that's what trust is. It's this willingness to be vulnerable uh, to the actions and intentions of others. Uh, And then, uh, as you said, the work kind of said, okay, so, but what are the components? What are we trusting people to do? Uh, or to be uh, and and so we determined after you know looking through actually lots of my own research as well as others that there are four dimensions on which we're willing to make this, uh, this judgment to trust. And I'm going to use Uber as an example here, uh, just so it's not too theoretical. And the, you know, those of us who are Uber, uh, we'll talk about Uber and Lyft in just a second. <laughs> uh, but let me sort of run through these four dimensions, but populate it using Uber as the example. Okay. Uh, so you've got something to hang on to. Uh, so the first dimension uh, is competence. Right, and and you know what? Uber wrote the book on ride-hailing. Until Uber, there was nothing like the process that we have now. You put a destination into your phone. You get a driver. You know who they are. They know who you are. You step into the car. No money changes hands. You leave, and you end up where you're supposed to go. You know how they solved
1: a lot of problems in order to figure out how to make that happen in what seems so invisible.
0: Exactly, and so they're uh, an expert at both kind of process design uh, and human factor design, right? How it is that you can structure work mm-hmm. so people can do it, uh, and so so from a competence standpoint, you got to go okay. Well, it doesn't get better than that, uh, but actually in 2018, there were about 200,000. No, I'm sorry, that number is wrong. 500,000 people who delisted their Uber accounts. Uh, and they did it because it was 2017. Uber was having a really bad year, uh, and a whole series of things had kind of come to the fore uh, that talked about not just what, who, how competent they were, but how they went about doing business. Uh, and so here are the other three dimensions on which people judge whether or not they're going to trust an organization. Uh, the first of these is just what are the motives of the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we can't get inside the head of a company. I'm not sure we'd want to, even if we could. Uh, but but what we can see is whose interest the company pays attention to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so there was an awful situation in 2013 where an Uber driver uh, struck a family of four in San Francisco. They killed a little six-year-old girl, injured the mother and brother. Uh, and the family, of course, took Uber to court. Uh, And in court, uh, Uber's argument was, you know what, that driver really wasn't an Uber employee. He didn't have uh, another passenger in his car, and he hadn't as yet accepted his next ride. So, you know, a company that's willing to do that is sort of interested in only one thing, and that's Uber's interest. And, And don't get me wrong, I'm a business person, and no one is at their best in the courtroom. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is not the moment to judge people by and large, but you do judge a, a rationale like that. Right. And you say, okay, so this is not a company I can trust just based on whose interests they care about, because it certainly doesn't seem to be mine as a rider, not even their own drivers. Uh, so that's in the moral domain. Right, this mm-hmm. notion of motives. Uh, the second aspect that's in the moral domain is, is, is sort of means. And you can think about as sort of the how you go about actually accomplishing your goal. Uh, and, and the thing that matters here is fairness. Mm-hmm. So people want to be treated fairly. Uh, and so if I'm gonna be willing to be vulnerable. I want someone to know that they're going to treat me and others like me fairly. Uh, And so uh, just a quick story, uh, between 2013 and 2015, uh, Uber instructed its drivers to book and then cancel 5,000 rides on Lyft. So this snotty. Well, so <laughs> this like defines unfair competition. Right. Right. Yeah. If you're in ride hailing and the name of the game is showing up on time, you want to kill your competitor, mess with their operations. Uh, and so so this is a, just a very clear way of how it is uh, that Uber did business. Uh, and again, it was a part of the reason why people said, you know what, I just don't like these guys. Uh, and so off goes uh, the account. Uh, and then the last dimension uh, is this dimension of impact. So we've got competence. Are you good at what you're supposed to be? Motives, whose interests do you take into account? Uh, means, you know, how fairly do you treat me and others? Uh, and then the last thing that really does seem to matter is what's the actual impact, the result of your actions, mm-hmm. whether intended or not.
1: So it sounds like all four of these things come together to create and sustain trust.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah, and that Laura is is sort of the point. You know, if competence were enough, then people would not have done delisting accounts. And you know, I still know people who say, "I'll start with Lyft, and you know, if I can't get a Lyft, right. then I'll get an Uber." Uh, And and so so that's this notion that, you know, that there are elements of trust uh, and it's built using these different dimensions. Uh, And so uh, and so now not being trusted matters. Uh, So in 2021, so Uber started with almost 90 percent of the ride hailing market. Uh, And in January 2021, actually, September, I updated numbers. uh, They own just just two thirds of the market and Lyft had the other third. So not being trusted opened up this wedge, uh, where a competitor could walk in and pretty much just do business by not being Uber, (laughs)
1: right? So you could see how by the betrayal of trust they lost market share exactly in really critical ways. There's a in what you said. There's a lot embedded in that, and some things I want to explore. Yeah. Um, So I want to start with. It's interesting that in the story you told about the driver. It raises that there are several different um, people, the question of who are they serving and they're serving only Uber. Um, I want to bring into high relief, who are the other people an organization might serve? The cynical amongst us might say, don't all organizations always serve themselves? But other organizations, including the one that you were working with in Japan, take a, a somewhat different view. So aside from or in addition to the organization obviously having its own success in mind, in companies where trust is prevalent,
0: who are, who are the other stakeholders? So the other stakeholders, so there are you know, roughly three or four others, depending on how you're counting. Uh, and, and you're so right the way you framed that, Laura, uh, because you always start with the notion that we're talking about for-profit organizations. And of course, they're going to take their own interest into account. They would be a very lousy business if they did not. Right, And so to me, that kind of goes without saying that's not like a bad thing. That just is part of what it means to do what it, to be in business. Uh, and so then the three other stakeholders, you know, uh, investors matter. Uh, And so we have to be on the lookout for how people in the financial markets judge our performance, whether people are subscribing to our stock and bringing up the value of it, which allows us to do things that we wouldn't do ordinarily. Uh, And so investors are a key constituent. Uh, Customers are obviously a key constituent. Uh, Without customers, you basically have no business. Uh, employees are the third. Uh, and, you know, employees, one of the things that we found studying, uh, and we can talk about this later, this Japanese company is is that trust is actually kind of built from the inside out. Uh, and so we tend to think of trust as reputation, mm-hmm. uh, but that's an outcome of actions. That's of such an interesting it. distinction. Right, right. And, and so I'm not building trust in my reputation. I build my reputation by acting in a certain way. And when I act in that way, people trust me and then I have a good reputation.
1: And that I, acting in a certain way is also what correlates then with the competency factor. It, you
0: actually show up as people are expecting you to show up. Exactly, exactly. So, so, so that, and then, but I would also, you know, at this point, the stakeholder map for most companies is pretty broad. So I just named like the basics. Uh, I would always put your regulators on that list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so depending on the nature of the business that you're in, it's your job to make sure that the regulators actually can help manage your market and your performance in ways that meet meets standards. That's another stakeholder group that you have to actually be very good to and get close to. Uh, The general public at this point is weighing in very largely on all kinds of actions and decisions that companies take. Uh, So it used to be that you could just sort of pay attention to your investors, your customers, maybe your employees. Uh, That's not happening anymore. You know, companies are being asked to make decisions in a whole host of ways that have the general public being interested in what kind of a corporate actor are we talking about here? Which goes
1: back to how public the backlash was to Uber, because the, the while you noted one particular problem at Uber, there were many that people, you know, voted with their feet.
0: Exactly right. Uh, and, and so and then there's, you know, a kind of a spillover effect. So we're, you know, over dinner one night and I mentioned, you know what, I've just had it with Uber. I can't put up with this anymore. And then you kind of go, okay, you know, my, am I feeling okay? And don't get me wrong. I, I, to this day, will take an Uber if I have to. Uh, and and so that's, that's one of the other things that you learn about trust is that it is multidimensional. And you can be good on some of these elements, really good. Uh, and not good on others. And thats it's not like game over. It just means the more elements that you're good at, the more trusted you are.
1: And that it's not binary and that our trust may ebb and flow in context and then shape decision-making
0: accordingly. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so it's um, looking at it through this multidimensional lens is an important way, A, to think about how we run our own companies or our organizations, but also to think about the relationship we're having as one of those many stakeholders along the way. Exactly. Today, I'm talking with Sandra Sucher. She's a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School. And we're talking about her latest book, The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It, and Regain It. In the first half hour, You were sharing with us these kind of building blocks of understanding trust. And we were talking about Uber um, as a particular example of a company that was so focused on its own, um, the the organizational success that along the way, they lost sight of a lot of things. Um, And what I'd like to focus on is their employees, And in particular, um, the kind of violation of trust that it is when sexual harassment and sexual misconduct is happening in an organization. Um, What can we learn from the way that this manifested at Uber and the way that it was dealt with over time?
0: Yeah, so so Uber has had a very uh, checkered history as a company for women and people of various underrepresented groups to work. Uh, I'm most familiar with uh, how they operate with respect to women. Uh, so, a uh, part of uh, so here's a story that I think is illustrative of what it's like or has been like at times to work at Uber. So, in 2017, uh, there was a female reliability engineer. Uh, her name was. Susan Fowler uh, and uh, and so she was at Uber she left after 2 years and when she left she wrote a, a blog post about what it was like for her to be there. This blog post, you know, caught fire on social media. Everyone was reading it. Uh, and she recounted uh, numerous examples of women complaining, often about the exact same male manager, uh, being told that, you know what, this is the first time we've heard this. Uh, and we'll take your, you know, comments seriously. And then when all the women started talking with each other, well, I talked about this guy. Well, I talked about this guy, too. So which one of us was like the first? Not clear uh, and nothing was being done. We know that Uber also had uh, given one very senior person a pretty big exit package as he left uh, as a result of being found guilty of sexual misconduct. Uh, so, But the Susan Fowler story is really interesting. Uh, so what she reports is that when she started at Uber, uh, women, female engineers uh, in her division were 25 percent. They were a quarter of the workforce, Uh, Which, well,
1: still not a good enough number. Not bad compared to how bad it can be elsewhere.
0: Right, right, and and for for tech, you know, it's like okay, you know, that's that's not horrible. Uh, When she left two years later, female managers were three percent. Three, they lost twenty two percent. Right, left. Right. Uh, and so so before, for those of you who were listening before, I was talking about the trust dimension of impact, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and impact is the actual kind of on the ground, I can see it with my own eyes, a result of company actions. And it covers both things that you intended and are sorry about if they go south, and in particular, things that you don't intend. Uh, so we hold companies accountable uh, for both their intended and unintended impacts. Think about climate change. Right. You know where you have all these organizations not trying to pollute the planet, but doing a pretty good job nonetheless. Uh, and so, so in the regard to Susan Fowler, you know Uber didn't set out to say let's be a bad place for women to work. It was an artifact of the people who worked there and the way that they operated. But it was not like I, I believe it was not a deliberate strategy. Nonetheless. We should judge Uber based on the results of its actions. And I'm not just saying that as a kind of a prescription. I'm saying that is how we judge people and organizations as we say, okay, I hear what you say, but guess what? 25% to 3%, come on. It's hard to believe either that if you didn't notice, you should have. And what was it that was going on that allowed that drop to go to almost virtually nothing?
1: Right. Which means Susan Fowler's complaint was not the only one.
0: Correct. Correct. And other women voting with their feet also left. So it's not like she was the only person who did this. And so so when we think about, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace, uh, there are like several dimensions of it. One is how horrible is it to be involved in these situations, and to watch how the organization responds or not mm-hmm. uh, to the complaints that you raise. Uh, and then there's the larger kind of organizational culture uh, that these things grow out of. Uh, yes. And right. And so it's it's never or very rarely just like a single person. There's a sanctioning process that makes something good to do, okay to do here. That's not okay to do elsewhere. Can
1: we go back a little bit to the culture question? Because it seems like culture is another term like trust. We talk about it a lot. It means a lot of things. Um, It represents a lot. But it seems like the same organization that would be so cavalier or calloused about a child being killed by a driver... Equally cavalier and dismissive and I'd say secretive or duplicitous about their behavior towards women. This is not just um, in under pressure around one issue. This sounds like it's um, it's endemic to the culture.
0: Right. And and so that story that uh, uh, before of Uber asking its drivers to cancel Book and then cancel 5,000 rides with Lyft. Uh, so there's a whole history of a kind of very shady, sometimes illegal, sometimes just supremely unethical things that Uber did. And at one point, Travis Kalanick, who at the time was the founder and CEO, uh, sort of humble bragged. And he said, you know what, I probably got 30 years of jail time that I'm looking at for all the things we've done. So if your leader does that, says that, uh, all of a sudden, anybody who had any thoughts about like, what what kind of a culture do we have here? What's okay to do? Because that's what leaders do. They basically demarcate areas of these are okay to work in and these are not okay. Right. And he's making a huge arena here of things that most people would wall off and say, we try not to be a place where those things happen. And basically saying that's okay. So I know on the other side of this,
1: um, and it was one of your Harvard colleagues, I think, who actually went to Uber to help them yes. learn how to have a better culture. Um, in terms of rebuilding trust, um, what can an organization do and what can leaders do to start to um, earn back trust that's not just perception?
0: Right. So uh, so it turns out that, that regaining lost trust is a process. Right, There's steps you go through. If you go through these steps, you're going to have a much better shot at regaining trust. If you kind of go at it without a, a strategy in mind, uh, you're not going to do so well. So so here, uh, and apologies are going to feature largely in what I'm about to say. Uh, and so so here are the three steps of regaining lost trust. Take note of this, all of you who are sort of listening. Uh, so the the first step is uh, is that you have to apologize. And what that means is you have to acknowledge that something was harmful that you caused. And you have to express sorrow for having done that.
1: So as an example, that's not, I'm sorry you're upset, (laughs) but it's, I'm sorry I did this bad thing that I recognize made you upset because my thing was bad.
0: Correct. Uh, And so uh, so this Japanese company that I studied uh, that had recovered from this massive scandal where the prime minister of Japan and his entire cabinet had to resign, 159 people were swept up, 44 people uh, had to resign their posts, 17 were arrested, the CEO went to jail. I mean, it's hard to get. And what
1: was the scandal that was? Insider
0: trading? Yeah, it was a shares for favor scandal. So it was a pre-listed company, uh, a subsidiary that hadn't yet gone public. Uh, and so the... CEO- All this creativity wrapped in evil, you know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People just spent that much time thinking about how to do good business. You know, think about how great it would be. So so that that was what the CEO did. Uh, and it got discovered, It kind of almost like Watergate by accident, by a couple of reporters who were trying to figure out how it was that Recruit, this company, got really on beneficial terms, this choice piece of real estate in Kawasaki, in a city, in a city. In in japan uh, and so they started digging into it and they found that you know the guy had made money on his trade the guy for the, for the government official uh, and that was how the thing started to unravel the newspaper by the way tried to kill the story uh, and the editors said no I'm i don't I'm probably think so. guessing encouraged by somebody at the company yeah, one would imagine right, right. Uh, and, and so uh, and, and so so this first thing that you have to do is you have to apologize you have to acknowledge that harm that you created harm and this scandal is so great that it's still written about in children's textbooks elementary school kids textbooks really if you go to someone on the street in Tokyo and you say recruit, uh, quite often they'll look at you and they'll say scandal. Uh, and wow, because... So
1: they're like RBP oil spiller Enron.
0: Right. Exactly. Right. So that is exactly how well known it is. Uh, and so guess what? And uh, I was going to say Enron. Recruit <laughs> uh, has the story of the scandal on its website. Uh, so they publish- That's kind of brave. It's remarkably brave. So this is sort of, and it's like three pages on their website, quite detailed. Here's what it was. Here's what we did wrong. And here are the steps that we took at that time to try to recover. Uh, and so, so, so to, you know, recovering lost trust is not about forgetting. Uh, it's about acknowledging, remembering, and using that as a fuel to get better.
1: It's so powerful to think about that. Um it just brought up for me in the past two years, as we've seen various organizations in the context of an, the racial justice movements throughout the United States, the difference between putting out a statement that says that we care, we value this, um, you know, go team, um, and really owning where a company was not just involved in, but integral to perhaps originating um, real crimes against people.
0: Correct. And and I think that if you want to get to the other side of being one of those organizations, the only path through uh, is to acknowledge that you've created harm, that you've created harm that's had an effect on other people's lives uh, and that you express that you're sorry about it. And uh, so I just wanted to make sure that people also got like the formula uh, for right. how to give a good apology, because this was one of the most interesting parts of the research. Uh, so there's a whole literature, academic literature, on how do you apologize. So who knew, right? You know, <laughs> it's uh, not as simple as say you're sorry and go back out to play. Yeah, right. And so there are like four, six different ways that you could basically cover an apology. And here are the three that are the best to do in this order Uh, the first is you do have to acknowledge harm and say you're sorry and say you're sorry you have to use that word so it's not mistakes were made right Uh, we deeply regret it's like i'm sorry for the harm i caused which looked like this but Um, it's that
1: word because that word brings with it the the expression that you wished you had not done this this was wrong
0: Correct, and I think that's that's why it's so powerful uh, because it really is a feeling that you have that you are sorry for the harm that you've created for someone else.
1: Can I, uh, just a, a small side note, we're gonna get back to this because it's important. It's so ironic that there are so many Organizations and people that should say, I'm sorry, yet women are conditioned to say we're sorry all the time for just bumping into somebody on the street, like something's upside down there and probably subject for another show.
0: (laughs) Right. uh, Okay. Yeah, yeah, I I definitely think because I have definitely had women ask, do these rules apply to me? Right. Uh, So I'm going to tell you the three steps uh, and then we can maybe talk about what's the women's adaptation.
1: That would be great. Okay. So first is you got to acknowledge and um, that what you've done was wrong and say you are sorry for it. You have to own it.
0: Right. And then the next thing, which sort of surprised me uh, is that you then have to give an explanation. Mm. Here's how this happened. Uh, and, you know, usually I tend to think, well, doesn't that make you sound defensive? And, and, but people actually, if you did something wrong, they want to know, did you know how it happened, <laughs> right? It's really important to understand that you understand the process that broke, uh, that mm. caused you to have it. So so the second step is an explanation. Uh, and the third is, is what's called an offer of repair, uh, and this is the things I'm going to do going forward to try to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Uh, so, so there's a, a very good example. You may recall it, Laura, uh, in 2017, where Waterhouse Cooper got the wrong, uh, mm-hmm. you right. <laughs> Academy at the orders. Oscars. Exactly. At the Oscars. Right. Uh, and so literally that, uh, that night, they had an apology up on their website, and they, the press release, and the apology said, we are so sorry and apologize for what we did in confusing La Land <laughs> with Moonlight, <laughs> right, and as to who won. Uh, they then said that the reason it happened uh, is that people actually were on their cell phone. Uh, and uh, and the offer of repair at that time was sort of, we're going to look into this. What they ended up doing and they announced this, uh, number one, of course, cell phones were banned from the stage, but <laughs> a, a better process was they required anybody who was working on behalf of PwC to memorize all of the winners. Oh,
1: wow. So they, they, so they, they calculated know. it, they know. And if they remembered it, there was a safety net in exactly. case the envelopes were wrong again.
0: A- exactly. So, so, so you can see that restoring lost trust is a process. You have to do things. It's not like a wish. Right? And so, the
1: outcome of doing this was Price Waterhouse retained by the Oscars. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I must say, you know, I, I do uh, some work in an educational vein with Price Waterhouse Coopers, and they've even allowed me even there if I wanted to to tell the story, which I thought was very great. Talk about being vulnerable. Yes. Uh, Right. You know, because they know that that was part of their past and they did this. And uh, and so so I I think that, you know, so that's what it it looks like. You know, you acknowledge harm. You have to explain what happened. You fix the harm. Right. You sort of uh, now for women uh, with respect to sort of how often or under what conditions you say you're sorry. uh, I do think that as a woman, you still have the obligation to make that statement. Mm hmm. Yeah, I I don't think that we're off the hook even if we do Never. it reflexively and way too often. <laughs> <laughs> you, right, you the know. place
1: to stop it is in the yeah, reflexively other encounters. doing it, but it's not in the taking
0: responsibility place. C- correct, and, and and that's part of because we trust people who we feel understand. They see the world we see, uh, and so if you say you're sorry for something that you did that harmed me, all of a sudden I know that you can see my reality. And that's what creates uh, this sense of trust. So, trust is very much, you know, uh, it's in the eye of the beholder. And we have to take the perspective of the person who's doing the trusting that's the person whose opinion matters. That's whose perspective we should be trying to understand. Uh, and so what's so great about the PWC thing is it feels like they kind of sat back and said, well, okay, what would I want if I were one of the people who got, you know, harmed in this right. announcement? You know, what's the, and and so it was not like they didn't have like the playbook I just outlined. So this yeah. was just very logical. This is how they thought about how they should go after it. So that's kind of reassuring. It means that this is not like some arcane skill. Right. You and know. like
1: speaking, it, it actually suggests that there's a culture there that helped to produce this. Correct. Oh, right. For, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. And I'm your host, Flora Arrow. I'm talking with Harvard Business School professor Sandra Sutter, and she's the author of The Power of Trust, How Companies Earn It, Lose It, and Regain It. So I want to ask a question about another instance that was described in the book. And it's, um, and it's, I think really about fairness and pay and the gender gap that can emerge within an organization. And as you're talking about it, how does it make people feel seen, betrayed? Um, So talk to me about why the gender pay gap, aside from just being fundamentally wrong and it's unfairness, what does it do to through the damage to the trust relationship to its
0: employees? Right. So so one of these, you know, four dimensions on which we trust is fairness. Right. So that's a fundamental arena in which we trust or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I expect an organization to treat me fairly. Uh, And, you know, so often when we do our discussion uh, around DEI, uh, we're, you know, very smartly kind of focused on issues of opening opportunity and making sure that there are paths to promotion. Uh, But something as fundamental as pay is huge. Right. Uh, And the fact that there is a pay gap, and as we know, it's quite different, you know, depending on if you're a person of color, what kind of color are you, what's (laughs) your ethnicity? Uh, And, you know, it can be as low as like 50% of what white men make all the way up to maybe 80% if you're lucky, right, if you're an Asian woman. Uh, And so so in this particular case, uh, this is a story about a a Scottish uh, reporter who worked for the BBC, a woman named Carrie Gracie, uh, and she found out, much to her dismay, uh, that she was paid roughly half what it was that she was that her male counterparts who themselves sort of managed uh, reporting in a given country environment in a region. She mm-hmm. was in China. They were. In other so
1: they places. were all doing the same work in the same place.
0: Right. Right. And so and she had said she would only take the job that she took uh, if she would be paid the same as other people. They said that she was, she found out she's paid 50% less than that. Uh, And so then she did some really interesting things. And I was thinking about how she handled this. So so she basically, once she found this out, uh, she wrote a letter, a public letter of resignation. She didn't leave the company, but she left her job. Uh, And and she said, uh, I actually pulled the quote up from my book because I thought uh, it was so great. Uh, She said, uh, it is painful to leave my China post abruptly uh, and say goodbye to the team in the BBC's Beijing Bureau, but most of them are brilliant young women. I don't want their generation to have to fight this battle in the future because my generation failed to win it now. So, you know, when when I read about this, we actually got this story uh, initially from the New Yorker profile of Carrie Gracie. Uh, I was blown away of the generosity with which Mm -hmm. she treated her situation. You know, as a corporate creature myself, I probably would advise don't go public.
1: Right. You know, you're afraid of how this you may burn bridges. You may not have other opportunities.
0: Correct. Uh, And so the fact that she took that strategy and she said, this is not just for me, this is for everyone, uh, I I thought was so impressive. There's a great uh, tidbit in the story about it where a whole group of people, men and women, show up at the the CEO's uh, office and all of them have badges and all the badges have their pay right on it.
1: Oh, my God. So they went public with it. So they all went public. Which is also they're becoming more vulnerable in order to help one another.
0: Exactly. So uh, in the story after, you know, kind of a year back and forth kind of does end up with them giving uh, Carrie Gracie uh, quite a bit of money, uh, which she immediately donates to an organization in the UK that works on issues of pay and equity for women. Uh, she then takes a leave uh, and six months later to do some writing and speaking about this. And then she left the BBC about six months after that. Uh, so, uh, you know, so these stories, it, it's not like it, this to me was inspiring, even though the mm-hmm. ending was kind of sad. Uh, because I, I and, and, and so but what happened is that the BBC now has actually a better track record than almost any other public organization in the UK uh, for pay gap, they track it every year, they report it every year. Uh, and so in general in, in the UK, the, the pay gap's around something 18%. And they're like at seven or eight percent. So they have really worked hard to try to get it down. It's not zero, but it's half of what's normative in their country.
1: It's a real testimony, though, to her courage. Exactly. And as a note, I think, to Vanessa Bonds, who was on the show talking about influence, about how activating and agitating at the ground level right. can really help to affect change.
0: Right. And, and it's not the kind of it's it's more the stuff of kind of stories or movies or, you know, novels. Uh, and so to read about a woman who, you know, like the rest of us, has a certain set of skills that she can apply in deciding to make this choice uh, to me really was an inspiring lesson in in moral courage uh, and in standing for other people's interests as well as your own. Uh, yeah, so it's it's an amazing story, and uh, and I know that in my own career, I, I once got a, a a raise that I thought was too little. Went to talk about a complaint about it. Honestly, <laughs> I was told by my boss, he said, "Sandra, that was a thirty-three percent raise." He said, the only thing you should say in the face of a 33% raise is thank you. <laughs> so I did learn, you know, that there's a point where, you know, it's like you can push too hard. And I, what did I know? I didn't know like what well, was enough, <laughs> right? You, you know, so so these, these are kind of fraught decisions, but Carrie Gracie, she's, she's like my hero, right? I
1: can see why. And just as a note for any women who are out there, percentages can be, you know, deceptive though, because I would start with, let's make sure that you, 33% of what is probably the operational question. Yeah, fair Um, enough. Yeah. But anyway, it so this is one of a number of stories in the book that I think really helped to bring these concepts about trust to life and and also some really inspirational stories. So if people want to find the book, they want to find out more about your work. Where can they go to do that?
0: Yeah. So uh, so you can find the book at Amazon uh, another company about which I have mixed feelings from a trust standpoint, nonetheless. Uh, but and they are it, effective at getting you a book to read. We'll exactly, give them that. they are super competent, right? So so Amazon is, is the place I, I would start. Uh, you can find me two different ways. I do have an author website, uh, sandrasutcher.com uh, and on it, for what it's worth, I put my favorite passion at the moment, which is K-drama, which are these Korean TV serials. Uh, so there's a little section there for those of you want an introduction to them with some recommendations, loving ones for me. Uh, So that's one place to find me. You can also find me at HBS at Harvard Business School. Just look on my faculty profile.
1: Fantastic. Sandra, thank you so much for the work you're doing and for joining us today.
0: It's been such a treat. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Oh, it really was a delight. And thank all of you for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business, and you can find me on LinkedIn. Our podcast is available 24 7, wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura's Arrow, and you will find us. Many thanks, as always, to my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Chris Tooks, and a special shout out for Cara Pogue for all of her work behind the scenes today and every day. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.